Before we open God's Word, let's pray. Father, we thank you for blessing us so greatly that we are able to gather again and hear from your Word. Lord, there is at least one in this room that is struggling with the desire to hear from a man. Would you come and grant all of us the grace to hear from God and no one else? Help us that we may hear, Holy Spirit, from your word as you have given it to us. Come and speak, Lord, through weakness and frailty and foolishness. Come in power. Apply the truth of your word to our hearts that we may love you and cling to you by faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, as I look around, I'm mindful of the many children that we have in the room. And I thank you for the testimony that their presence bears to the faithfulness of your people and ask tonight that the, the word might touch their hearts, that the spirit might work in them, even as they fail to understand some or much of what is said. Spirit, come and work upon their hearts by your word in mysterious ways that we know that you are able to do. Bring them to yourself. Bring us all again to Christ, we pray for his sake. Amen. Open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 33. Exodus 33, our reading begins in verse 18 of chapter 33, and we'll go through verse 8 of chapter 34. This is the word of the Lord. Moses said, please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand And you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Then Moses, uh, then the Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first. And I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. Amen. 
May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy and inspired word. Well, we're we're coming back to this text again because we didn't quite finish up last time. Just by way of reminder, we keep sort of hop-skipping through Exodus these last several weeks. Remember that God has delivered his people up out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He's preserved and protected them through the wilderness. He's promised to them that he will be their God and they will be his people. And, And he's leading them along this long section that we spent time in where he gives instructions to Moses about how the people are to worship him, how how the relationship is to look and be. And as Moses comes back down, this great sin has erupted in the camp. They've, They've decided they'll worship God how they see fit. They grew impatient, and they wanted to be like the pagan nations around them, presumably. They they constructed this golden bull, and are bowing down to it, and performing all sorts of revelry before it. And the Lord comes down and rightly threatens, in the face of Moses, to consume the people. They're going to be like this. I'm done with them. I'll start fresh. And as Moses is there on the mountain, he he pleads for their lives, which are granted. The Lord promises that they will will gain entrance into the land, but he will not go with them. And it's that alarming news that prompts Moses to approach God in that tent of meeting outside the camp with a couple of requests. We dealt with the first one a while ago now that Moses called upon the Lord to go with the people into the land. Remember the idea that that, that the beauty of the land is the presence of God. That if he won't go with them, why go at all? You can look back at 33 uh, in chapter 14, the Lord's response to him. He said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct? Jump down to 17. The Lord said to Moses, this very thing you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And so this part of the problem is remedied. The Lord has said, okay, I'll come back to what I originally promised. I will go with you into the land. And last time we began addressing this this final request of Moses as he's on the mountain before the Lord. Verse 18 of our text tonight, Moses said, please show me your glory. The Lord affirms this. He says he'll answer. We'll look at some of that text tonight there in 19. He declares, I I will come and and reveal my character to you. And then if if you jump, we see in verse 18. Six is when the Lord passes by him and proclaims himself to him. And that's really the main focus, especially of tonight's time, is chapter 34, verses 5 through 7. Moses wants to see the Lord. He wants to know the Lord. May the Lord help us to have the same desire as we look at how he reveals himself. But do you remember we talked about it at length how the Lord reveals himself? He preaches. There's two main focal points of this passage. The first we already dealt with was the format, that is the, the sermon that God preached to Moses, just as he continues to preach sermons to us today. He ministered to Moses in the same way he continues to minister to us. Tonight, we'll focus more on the content. Um, but just, just by way of reminder, let's let's... Let's think about 
the format that God chose to reveal himself. God's response to Moses' request, show me your glory, was to mount a pulpit. He, he didn't pass by in some material form. He didn't give uh, Moses, at least as far as we know, something detailed for him to write down. The language that we have is transient. If you look down at the bottom of, uh, the bottom of chapter 33, you know, he says, there's a place where you shall stand, and when my glory passes, I'll put you in a cleft of the rock. And then again in verse, um, verse 6 of chapter 34, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed. He didn't stop and, and spend time with him for a long time. He didn't, he didn't give him a, an image of himself or some kind of picture for Moses to focus on. He, he simply breezed by, as it were. He walked past. And in fact, whatever Moses may have seen in that moment, he does not record it for us. All of this is to, is to emphasize not what Moses saw, but what Moses heard. I don't know how much sense we were able to make of it last time, but do you realize the immense blessing that, that we sit in the same place as Moses? He had nothing, can we say it? He had nothing better than what we get every week. The Word of God proclaimed from the very words of Scripture. The Word of God proclaimed by the herald of God upon the people of God, to the people of God, ministered by the Spirit upon your hearts. We have every benefit that Moses had, I dare say, more with the new revelation that we receive from the New Testament and that including all of what Christ has done for us. We sit in better places than Moses sat even when he was hid in that cleft. Steve Lawson says when he preaches on this text, here is God's own sermon on himself. Note, he writes, the principal centrality of the preaching of the glory of God, that God now answers Moses' request by mounting a pulpit and preaching himself. And that's the main subject of our time tonight as we finish out this passage. We're going to look and see what God preached so if we saw last time the format of his revelation to Moses, now tonight we see the content of his revelation to Moses. What did he talk about when he preached before the face of Moses? Look first with me at 33 in verse 19. Moses has just asked to see his glory. And God answers him first before bringing him up to the mountain and actually accomplishing that which Moses requests. He answers him first and says he will do it. But look at what he says. Verse 19, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. Now, I hope you can see the distinction there. What does Moses ask for? He asks to see God's glory. And God responds by saying he will reveal his goodness. And we may at first be inclined to think, well, God is offering a kind and compassionate correction to Moses. That instead of telling him to, shh, 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 you can't see my glory, but I'll show you my goodness. No, it's not a correction. We may actually say that God is doubling down on Moses' request. That what is Moses' desire here? To see God's glory, to know the essential nature of his Lord. And this is what God tells us in his response, is that God's goodness is is His glory. That all that is wonderful and magnificent about God flows out of the very fact that He is good. 
And so as Moses asks to know the Lord and to see the Lord, the Lord says, I I will will make all my goodness pass before you. You may not realize that that you see it all the time in Scripture. That um, You know when the psalmist describes God and we have these lists of characteristics that describe the Lord often, not all the time, often, that the primary characteristic in the list is that he is good. We actually read some of those verses tonight from Psalm 118. But you can go to other places like Psalm 86, verse 5. The psalmist says, For you, O Lord, there's a list, but what's the first one? You are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. You can jump forward some to Psalm 100, verse 5. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and His faithfulness to all generations. That God's goodness is a representation of Himself, of His glory, of His blessedness, of everything that is to be desired about who He is. It can be summed up in this word, good. It even gets to the point that on occasion in the Old Testament, you will see good used as a substitute either for God's name or for his, his presence. One example is from Hosea, Hosea chapter 3. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. Of all the things that could have been listed, they're going to come to the Lord and they're going to come to his justice. Or they're going to come to his compassion. They're going to come to his mercy. No, it, it's, it's that word in which all of God is tied up. They're going to come to him and his goodness. This is what God will declare, how good he is. And so you, you, you jump from that, that promise in 19 that he will make all of his goodness pass by all the way down to chapter uh, 34, verse 5, where the Lord actually does what Moses has requested. We get there the fulfillment of thirty-three nineteen. God begins to preach. Look at verse 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. These words from Exodus chapter 34 become creedal in the life of Israel. They, they come to be a formula, not just for how God's people refer to Him, but also for how God Himself refers to Him. Numbers chapter 14, just a, a couple of books ahead of where we are. The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. That's almost a direct quote of what he has just spoken to Moses. Or Psalm 86 again. 
But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Or Joel chapter 2. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is what? Gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Or even Jonah, that fool of a prophet, he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew what? That you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Nehemiah chapter 9, they refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and you did not forsake them. We could spend all night going throughout the Scriptures and seeing all the places that God has either revealed Himself in these same words or where God's people themselves have taken these words and put them back into use. And what does this show us? What does it mean that this is repeated again and again about God throughout the pages of Scripture? It means that this is how God wants to be known by His people. This is who He is. And so in the face of it, we, we ought to be challenged to consider how we think of God. Is He to you cold and distant? Is He that aloof, stern God that just sort of comes in when things are wrong and when you need correction? Perhaps God seems to you just a get-out-of-jail-free card. He's, he's simply there to excuse your sin when it's convenient for you. I hope that your main thoughts of God are the same as these in the text. And if they aren't, may the Lord help us that they would be. That we would know the Lord to be just as He has declared. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Do you see the marvelous balance of his character? that indeed he, he is a God of holiness and justice. And that, that's clear. You know, in the end of verse 7, it doesn't mean that, that you'll suffer for the sins of your father, but it does mean that if your father's a sinner and runs away from God, you're not likely to, to draw near to him either. Just the way natural generation goes, isn't it? That our children follow in our footsteps. He is a God who is holy and just, and He will not let sin go unpunished. And the Lord is a God of compassion and full of mercy, and He will not forsake His covenant people, nor let them die in their sin. This is how God wants to be known by His people.
consider why. Why does the Lord describe himself with these words? You know, Moses desires to see God's glory, to know the Lord truly and deeply. And and the people that Moses leads have struggled to love God and have struggled to follow him. What do the people need? Ligon Duncan says, when God manifests himself on Sinai, the content of his revelation to Moses is all about him. He says that's the answer that the children of Israel need to have. They need to know about God. They don't need social programs put in place so that they stay within the bounds. Is there anything wrong with the program once in a while? They don't, they don't need sort of to pull themselves up by their bootstraps and just try harder. Ligon says, now they, they may have thought they needed to know a lot of other things, but God says here through Moses, what you really need to know about me is me. What you really need to know, the most practical thing that you could ever learn is me. You know, that, that flies in the face of all of our natural tendency, doesn't it? That if I need to improve my life, if I need to get better at what God has given me to do, that I need somehow need to work harder or try better. But what God says here is the answer to our problems, the answer to our sin, as we see it sort of flooding in from chapter 32, the answer to all of this is the God that we worship. It is the Lord Himself. We need to know God's mercy just like they did. We need to know, as he declares here, that he refuses to be rid of his disobedient children. All there through 6 and 7. He is the Lord, merciful and gracious. God is full of compassion. He's like a tender father. He understands because he's, he knows us as his son has dwelt among us. He knows our weakness he knows us as His children and He sympathizes with us. He is the Lord, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is a declaration of God's mercy. That He, he is not eager to be rid of us, though we often believe that. He is not ready to be done with us, nor will He ever be if we rest in Christ. He is patient and long-suffering. He is faithful to the promises that He has made to us. He is the Lord, forgiving the iniquity and transgression and sin of His people. Beloved, all the twistedness of your fallen nature, He forgives. All, all the willful rebellion of your treacherous hearts, He forgives. All, all your failure to live up to His law, He forgives. Iniquity and transgression and sin. One man says that the Lord forgives the whole range of our disregard for Him. All of your iniquity and transgression and sin. He is the Lord. He is holy and just and He will not clear the guilty. Sin must be punished. And if you have any sense of a true picture of who our God is, you will heartily agree with that, that sin cannot go unpunished. It must be dealt with. 
wrath will fall either on the unrepentant sinner or on Jesus as the substitute of his covenant people. But sin must go punished. It cannot be left alone. This declaration of the character of God is what his people need in those moments. It's what they needed then after their their great sin with the golden bull and it is what we still need today. You know, the world tells you that in order to get a good life, you need to seek self-improvement, seek money, seek pleasure, seek things. You know, if you can just get a good looking Facebook profile, you'll be fine. But in this passage, the Lord declares to you what you actually need. You know all that dullness you feel from day to day and all that coldness? All the weariness of this ruined world? The sin stain on your heart that still lingers? That all those things that you keep fighting and can't quite find victory? All, all of that, 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 you know, that dull, dreary drudgery of life. This is the solution, Christian. This is where true joy is found. This is where life we need to remedy our hearts with the character of God. And what in particular has he declared? Oh, so many things. But um, two, two in particular for us to consider tonight as we think about God's revelation of himself here, of his mercy revealed to us. The first thing that God has revealed that we need in order to know him, in order, in order to find life and to... To walk with Him, you know, is the Son of God, the Savior of sinners, our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter wrote in his first epistle, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. All of the goodness that God preaches to Moses here is yours through Christ. You, you are the guilty in the middle of verse 7. You are the one that God will by no means clear. But if you are in Christ, you have been cleared. You've been acquitted. You've been freed from sin and death. Your sin has been counted to Christ and His righteousness counted to you. That's the first place we have to go as we look at the character of God. It's displayed in the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is where God has chosen to, to shine for us His character and His nature and what He's chosen to do for us. This, the gospel of Jesus, is a picture of the mercy of God here declared to Moses. And so that's the second thing for us to consider and observe here is that as we live our lives... And as we walk through hard things, we must remember the mercy of God. You know, there's all sorts of ways it's referred to in Scripture. Mercy, loving kindness, steadfast love. My favorite is, is a Scottish friend of mine's definition. He says it is God's persistent refusal to be rid of His disobedient children. God's mercy. That, that, that is what will carry us day to day through the Christian life. You know, what do you do 
when you look up again and you realize that you have sinned against the Lord again. For a believer, our neglect of God should bring shame and disgrace. For the Lord's children, our our sin should, should thrust our stomach into knots, for we have done again that which lifted Christ up on the cross and held Him there. What do we do? Again I have offended. Again I have displeased. What am I to do? Well, you know, your temptation is to shrink away, right? Is to pull an Adam and Eve? Why are you hiding? Because of the shame and the disgrace that we feel. But that is not the way of a child of God. We will not shrink away. The Puritan Richard Sibbs, he writes, stretch your brains a little bit with me. Let us yield to God the glory of His mercy. He says, think this. Let me not deny myself comfort and deny God glory both at once. His mercy is not something that He sort of hands you hesitantly sort of trying to keep back as much for himself as he can, he stands with open arms, ready to receive us. And he receives glory and honor and praise when we are recipients of his mercy. Why would we deny the comfort of coming back to him and the glory of his praise by shrinking away, by running from him and thinking that we have done something that even he cannot forgive? No. Sibs goes on, he says, you might say, but, but I've offended often and grievously. Isn't that how we feel? But I've done it again and again and again. And it's worse this time, and then it got a little bit better, and then it's worse this time, and we, we start to categorize our sin and try to figure out what we're going to do. But I have offended often and grievous, grievously. Sibs replies this way, With men, offenses often cause permanent alienation, but with God this is not so. As often as we have spirit to go to God for mercy and spread our sins before Him with broken and humble hearts, we will receive pardon. And he quotes from Exodus 34, The Lord, the Lord, gracious, merciful, long-suffering. He will be known by those names. He says, If you find your conscience wounded with sin, do not hold back from God any longer. Come and yield. Lay down your weapons. There is mercy ready. It is a victorious, triumphing mercy over all sin and unworthiness. Look upon God in the face of Jesus Christ. In the face of Christ, God is lovely. You know, in spite of of the fact that you are sinful and weak, beloved, in spite of all all that you have done, that you're rebellious and frail, in spite of the fact that you struggle to be content in the circumstances that God has provided, in in spite of the fact that you you yearn for unfulfilled desires, in, in spite of the fact that you're a much worse spouse and parent than you want to be, in spite of all of our brokenness and our wretchedness and our wickedness, in spite of all of it, God loves you. And He will not be rid of you. 
and he never leaves. And you'll never find him absent when you seek him. Always consistently there. Why? Because our God is the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness who keeps steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but will who by will by no means clear the guilty. And so here's the question. At the end of this sermon, will you respond to God's glory like Moses did? Verse 8. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. May the Lord by his spirit give us each a sight of his goodness and mercy so that we have nothing to do but bow and worship. Amen. Oh, Lord, our God, for the sake of your Son, send your Spirit now to apply the truth of your word to our hearts that we may not sin against you, but instead may know life, may know repentance, that we may know the joy of your mercy poured out for us in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, that we may love you and cling to you and give us now hearts full of warmth and affection that we may worship you all of our life long. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.